Hello and welcome to the Trans Questioning Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. And today, my guest is Rose Benjamin. Hello. Hello, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's uh, noon o'clock in my corner of the world, and I'm busy and tired, as always, but I'm here. Um, So you are a... Uh, therapist focusing on uh, transgender issues. Is that correct? I am a transgender queer therapist who also treats transgender queer clients. So hopefully I bring a certain perspective to my work. Yeah. You emailed me a while ago and I was very excited to talk to you because this is definitely, you're on, you're on a side of things that I am uh, very interested in because I get a lot of questions asking for advice and guidance. And I am a, I'm a film student. Like <laughs> it's not my expertise. So I'm looking forward to talking about this stuff. Consider me the resident consult for whatever you might need going forward, please. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Your, your history, doing what you do, I suppose. Okay. So I'm going to dive right in, and I hope that that's okay. That's perfectly fine. To summarize what is always a complicated journey, I came from trauma. Mm-hmm. I've made the journey from darkness to flowers. Still darkness, but also flowers now. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I went from, I, I suppose, a homeless youth um, surrounded by drugs and, and, and uh, dying and, 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 and such things. And um, I somehow ended up treating the very things that I went through. I I tend to think it's a strength. I tend to use it as a resource. Uh, but I will tell you that going into becoming a therapist, it was my biggest concern was how well can I do this having had my own trauma, my own journey. Um, mm-hmm. But I find that if if we're careful, if we are aware of the lenses that we're speaking through, I do think that we can use whatever journeys, whatever struggles, whatever shit it took to grow all these flowers, I believe we can use the dirt as well as the blossoms in our uh, shared wisdom going forward. So that's a bit about my journey. I've been, well, I guess I should say just a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) I'm married. For 15 years, I have a three and a half year old son. Wow. Um, um, I am in love with my partner. Um, we are also poly um, and have other intersectionalities. We're both queer. They're gender non-binary. Um, so that's a little bit about us. My coming out moment was like this. We were watching the show Transparent about five years ago, and I suddenly paused it and said, well, that just sounds like me. (laughs) And my partner was like, "Uh, yeah. And I played it for about three more minutes, and I paused it, and I said, well, but she's transgender. And my partner was like, "Uh, yeah. (laughs) And I played it again. And at the end of the episode, I was like, I'm transgender. And my partner was like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So here we are. Yeah. It's always like that, isn't it? Where you just, it just, it just, it just seems to be some random thing that it like, it, it, it hits you from the side. But you know, what's funny is it took a year from there for me to really, even being a therapist, working 
with trans clients, a gender therapist. Um, even so, it took me a year to believe it enough and to trust my spirit enough to walk out the door the way I wanted to uh, for the first time. So, you know, I understand that part of the journey too, for sure. Yeah. I, I think it's very easy, especially for young people to see uh, trans and queer people in positions of, um, I don't know if authority is necessarily the right word, um, but just people. I know I'm trying to think what the right word would be there, but I I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, where where it, they feel like, okay, so you're the expert or you, you're, you've got it right. figured out to some extent. And it's, it's it's funny. I I often feel like the advice that I give is the advice that I need to hear to some extent, and I'm almost always like saying things that are extremely obvious when it's somebody else. But if it was me, and I was facing the same problem, I would be like mincing words and dodging the question. And when it comes to gender stuff it's very easy to look at somebody, especially when you have enough experience to know what you're talking about. It's very easy to look at somebody and say, give them guidance and and help them go through coming out to themselves. And that's very clear. But then when it comes to yourself, like it, it can take forever, no matter how much you know or think you know. And it's, it's really frustrating. And like, I don't know. I find it. I just find the, the the infuriating subjectivity of gender just so fascinating. One of the reasons I love what you said. One of the reasons that wisdom takes so long, I believe, is being the application of truth, feeling, and spirit to others. I think that's easier than to the self, and I think true wisdom requires both. It requires that we are able to apply what we know to be real and true and maybe even right deep down inside, hopefully. Um, When we are able to use that and apply the words that come out of our mouths that are so beneficial for people, apply that to ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I have sat in my therapist chair as Uh, Words come out, words that only come out because somebody else needs me. And I, even though I needed to hear it, that wasn't quite enough, I suppose. I hear them come out, they bounce off the wall, they come back to my ear, and I think, dang, that that sounds like really good advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And gender is one of the, I would say, one of the tightest strung knots when it comes to uh, mixing up uh, this, this little, uh, this little s- small detail about wisdom, the application to the self. It complicates things. It complicates it because we often don't trust ourselves for a long time. Um, and so it's hard to trust our own wisdom. Um, so transition being in my mind, a journey of empowerment. It's also a journey of reclaiming our deepest self and the wisdom comes with that. Yeah. I, uh, I remember thinking of it in terms of, um, oh gosh, what did I say? I lost my own train of thought before we started recording. You, you warned me that sometimes you get lost and I might need to remind you. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I do the same thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So yes, I, I, I want to, I want to ask you, uh, and I think I already know the answer, but what is the most common question that you get asked? Am I trans? Yeah. Yeah. For me, yeah, it's it's like, am I trans or how do I know if I'm trans? How do I know if I'm trans? Am I trans? Is this trans what I'm describing? Is this trans enough? Is the 
is the unspoken question, I think. Yes. Often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I get that question once a week at the very least, usually more. I haven't been updating the podcast in a little while at this point, so it's been slowing down, but when it's, when it's on, uh, that's always the question that I get. And it, it is so pernicious. It seems like how, even though it, it you're, you're pe- people are literally listening to a podcast where I'm like, yeah, genders, genders a fuck. And here we are. And everybody's trans enough and you're fine. You can just do it. And then they're like, well, yeah, that's great. But, but what about me? What if right. I'm the exception? <laughs> exactly. I'm the one. I'm the outlier. I'm the one, the, uh, yeah, the anomaly here. The one who's making it up. Mm-hmm. The one who's, who, yeah. I think part of the problem is that what I see is the typical trans narrative is atypical. The typical trans narrative that we see on Reddit where at three years old, you were sure you were trans and so on. Um, while that's very true for some, I don't want to be dismissive, um, or the notion that dysphoria has to be so, so, um, so dire that one's life is at stake. And of course we know this is often the case, but it's not always the case. For instance, um, one of the biggest, uh, I would say, dissonances between the typical narrative uh, on something like Reddit and the kind of narrative I really see um, um, it has to do with um, dysphoria and how much dysphoria is enough for trans and I just want to say to anyone listening, being trans is not about dysphoria. Yeah. While, while many of us, most of us, have some type of dysphoria, it's not even necessary to be trans, and the amount is not correlative, in my opinion, to transness. Um, it's certainly a symptom and a sign. There's no question. It points in a direction. I mean, it tells me a lot of information, but it's not like a 7.8 of dysphoria means an 8.2 of trans. It doesn't work like that. Absolutely not. And I don't want people to suffer longer than they need to from self-doubt based upon the notion that your dysphoria has to look and feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't. All that's required to be trans, all that's required for you to be welcome to use the term if you want, is for you to not feel cisgendered. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Dysphoria, dysphoria comes and goes, and, and, and a lot of other things do, but... The key is that your gender inside, or or non-gender for that matter, obviously, um, is basically not matching what the world is telling you. Yeah, I uh, my experience in this regard is that I didn't identify my my experience as being one of dysphoria until I was 28. And I, whenever I realized I was trans, there was like a, a one week period where I went, I, I read something and I realized like, Oh, Hey, that kind of sounds like me. I should do more research. And coming, I, I came out at the end of that. And then from there, it was like a year long process before I got on HRT. And I spent a lot of that time reflecting on my life. And it was at that point where I kind of pinpointed, oh, this thing that has been wrong with me for most of my life, that was dysphoria. Uh, But it took me a long time to really accept that because, you know, I I didn't feel, it didn't feel like dysphoria. Obviously I didn't know what that word was for, for, for most of my life. And so I was like, oh no, I don't have dysphoria. That seems, you know, I don't, 
I'm not trans. I can't be because I don't. And then I went through that, that self-exploration and realized that, oh, wait, no, this thing that I have felt, that is my version of dysphoria. And oddly enough, after coming out for, for a while, a lot of that dysphoria got worse. Some of it got more specific because, yes. yeah, because once I recognized that the problem was the misalignment of like my internal self with my external self, I was much more able to like zero in on the things about my body that made me uncomfortable. So true. There's often a burst of that that comes after the awareness that one is trans, right? Exactly. Once one realizes the ideal that they're allowed to think about finally, then they begin comparing, of, of course, and then we get we get dysphoria. And I love what you're saying. I think it's really, really common that people don't recognize the many, many forms of dysphoria. They're imagining, again, a typical trans narrative where you look in the mirror and it just directly hits you in the face. Um, and that happens. Let's not lie. No, that's, of course. That, that's common. But that's just not the only kind of dysphoria. You know, dysphoria can be sneaky. Dysphoria can be something like, in my case, maybe I pass a cis woman who looks exactly how my dream image is. I don't even notice it consciously, but 40 minutes later, I'm doubting myself when I'm talking. Mm. And that's dysphoria. That's, I call that indirect dysphoria. Um, I mean, there's so many kinds of dysphoria. A lot of times, if you find yourself feeling low and you're in transition, you can trace the thoughts. If you can trace the thoughts, sometimes it's hard. A lot of times, it's something triggering happened that set off a feeling of dissonance between your gender and your expression, usually, and boom. That's a, that's a dysphoric feeling right there. And of course, there's more traditional forms of dysphoria that we're more used to, um, you know, mirrors, showers, sure. and so on, um, sex, um, all those sorts of things um, are common forms of dysphoria, of course, as, as well. I just like to stress that uh, much like PTSD, actually, dysphoria is a protein character. It just takes on so many forms and of course, looking back, like what you said, looking back, it was true in my case, too, that I realized the feeling of living three inches to the left of where I should be for all my life, that was dysphoria. Yes. I would also add that I think dysphoria as a sensation is comorbid with a lot of other things. Yes. I, because um, I've, when I, when I came out, right around that time, I was like just under uh, 300 pounds and I've been overweight for most of my life. And I always attributed this feeling of being wrong to I'm overweight because of course, yeah. you know, we live in a society that's fat phobic and shames, mm -hmm. shames people who don't have like perfectly athletic bodies. Mm -hmm. So being overweight is, was absolutely a, a dysphoric trigger. And I've since coming out, I was able to lose more weight. But the reason why I was able to do that was the problem specifically wasn't I was unhealthy, I was overweight or whatever. The problem was that it it was a further misalignment of my <clears throat> body from myself. And like I tried to go on diets so many different times, like this is the thing that you're supposed to do. If you're overweight and you want to lose weight, you go on a diet or you start exercising and I could do it for like a week or two and then it wouldn't stick. Um, but once I came out, I was able to like actually get that, like stick to it because I wasn't doing it for, to, to fit to some like mold that I was, I was guilty that I didn't fit. I was doing it because I I knew myself and I wanted to be myself. It wasn't like, it wasn't even that I started uh, being more active in a, in an explicit sense. It was just sort of a natural outgrowth of 
like the, the big revelation for me coming out was, oh, I have a reason to live now. And like, of wow. course, of course, being being healthy is like a natural outgrowth of like, oh, well, I guess I want to live to ha- die of old age. So I need to start taking care of my body. Um, but but back to the point, like. I, I misattributed like the core kernel of dysphoria to being overweight. And most of the project of my 20s was feeling wrong and recognizing I was depressed. I didn't like myself. And I'd been that way for my entire adolescence and my entire young adulthood and trying to figure out why, trying to fix it and doing so through every means that I could come up with and none of it worked. And it was all just because I kept misattributing dysphoria because it, it it's, it's pernicious. It's it hides. Like you say, it's sneaky. Absolutely. And I want to address actually your side first, because I thought it was quite powerful about what sounded to me like this thing that happens where we inhabit our lives really for the first time, we claim ourselves, we, we become awake to the world and awake to ourselves. And getting healthy takes on a new meaning then. Wanting to live takes on a new meaning. Love takes on a new meaning. What, what success means takes on a new meaning. I mean, so many things take on a new meaning. And I can't stress this enough. Transition is a journey of empowerment. It is a journey of selfhood. It is a journey of realness. It is a journey of depth, authenticity, honesty. It is hard. It is scary. It is tough. It can be so fraught, so fraught with depression and anxiety and PTSD for many. Um, Nonetheless, you go through all that because it comes along with yourself. And I tell people this, they come in and they are basically at the end of their rope. They say, I think I'm trans and I don't want to live. And I tell them this, I say, please promise me, please promise me that you will spend one day as yourself first before you decide anything Mm. like that. Just, Just give it a day to really be you, to feel like yourself. That's how powerful it really is. And I'll tell you, it works. Yeah. It works. Um, so I loved that point, but your larger point about comorbidity and intersectionality complicating and um, sort of, uh, you might say, clouding the waters of transness, complicating things, I cannot agree more. People come in with dysphoria, dysmorphia, eating disorders, body issues, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and... I have to think, what's the priority here? And I can tell you, it's almost always trans. Because until you untie that knot, you kind of don't really fully know what you're working with, with everything else. But it's so hard to see because it mimics so many other things and so many other things add up to it. But... Therapists are getting a little bit better at it. We're getting a lot better at it in our community of recognizing it in each other. Um, But it is so common that people come in and they tell me this laundry list of issues and they describe basically the contours of transness. And I think, my friend... It's not eight disorders. You're just trans and it complicates the shit out of everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I think also 
there is the unfortunate fact that a lot of the the um a lot of media focuses on statistics yes. and when we're when we're trying to campaign for trans rights in the government and uh, representation um the focus tends to be suicidality depression uh yes. you know measurable statistics and i think a lot of people face this and i faced this when i came out you know, my, my family was generally supportive, but they had concerns. They were like, well, I've read the statistics about trans people. And I don't think that, you know, I, you've, you've already had a hard enough time. Do, do you really think that this is something you should be doing? And it, that's the unfortunate thing about the statistics is that when we're talking about like, the, the 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 problems facing trans people in general were sort of missing the fact that those th- that th- those statistics are a result of um, shame and the 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 lack of availability of proper resources and um, uh, you know being disowned by their community. The problem isn't tr- them being trans. The problem is how the world is socialized to treat transness in a general sense, like how systemically trans people are treated. And what I uh, frequently say is like, what about euphoria? Like the opposite side. The, the thing is, yeah, there are, there are things that I face now that are, that are more difficult as a result of coming out and starting transition, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because I feel better in myself in a way that is indefinable. It is like being, being me now is, is almost like bafflingly good to the point where it doesn't, I, I, it, it feels like I'm cheating <laughs> to an extent. Um, and so when when so much of what we're focused on is like the statistics, I do think that it's easy to get lost in like, well, but coming out is is a bad thing, right? Like being trans is a bad thing. And yeah, you say, well, just live as yourself and see how you feel. And like, I think, I think in my experience, that absolutely is what the, it's, it's the experience of euphoria that, that gets people like switching uh, switching their attitude a bit. Um, it's despite all those statistics, we pretty much all still think it's worth it. Yes, that's, that's how that's how deep of a fulfilling, uh, meaningful experience it is to finally be in contact with your true self. And I want to say something um, to to what you're saying, and and. And I just want to be very clear. Not only is dysphoria not not the equivalent of transness, though it's often associated with it, I want to say this, and as a therapist, I want to tell you that transgender is not a disorder. Mm. The environment is what makes it feel like one. Um, if trans bodies were represented in the way they should be, there would still be dysphoria. There's no doubt. There would still be dissonance. But does anybody doubt that if we could focus our sights on the positive outcomes maybe as well as not forgetting the negative ones. Like, how do you quantify wanting to finally love fully? Mm. How do you quantify wanting to live? How do you quantify having a new baseline that you've never had before that you call gender euphoria and you realize it's just your new self? Yes. You know, how do you, how do you quantify feeling like you are actually inside your body for probably the first time fully at, at times, hopefully. Yeah. Um, you can't quantify it 
And so it's difficult for the wider public to imagine, I guess, at times. Um, but really, trans is not uh, a plague. It's an opportunity to reimagine yourself to better fit who you really are inside. And when people pity us, I think to myself now, hey, you know, probably everyone should do that. And we just have to. We just have to. Sure, that's the only way you probably do it because it's pretty uncomfortable to have to rethink the whole foundations of your psyche. But to be that conscious, to be that intentional in putting together who you want to be to best match who you really are as often an adult or, or, or at, at, at least a young adult who's aware of what's going on. Um, everyone should probably do that. It's just crises that make us do it. And trans is a kind of crisis, but it's really a good one in the long run. I would say if, if it's, if it's, if it's walked with care and and hopefully there's some community and support around it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I um, I have a friend who frequently likes to joke that um, uh, big gender wants to oppress us to sell us like the worst genders. And my my feeling on that is like, yeah, everybody should probably go through this process of like self-examination because we are all in a society. We're all subject to these same expectations. And there is the advantage of being cis where you do fit within that mold, but you're still subject to the same expectations. And the result is like the compression of self and being forced into to behaving ways that you don't that, that that don't benefit you that aren't healthy, um, I think. I don't know. I, it is. I think you're absolutely spot on that it is like crisis that that pushes trans people to come out, and I think as what we've been seeing over the last like decade or so is the expansion of what we think of as trans people, like in the popular popular consciousness. And that's, that's the result of like expanding the umbrella to include more people and like talking about and representing more aspects of the experience. And that's, that's like the whole point of this podcast was when I was doing research, I couldn't find any real stories that felt like they reflected my own. And that was like, if, if I had seen a story like mine years and years beforehand, I pr it probably would have helped me come out much sooner and saved me a lot of grief in the process. And so I think that's, I'm, I'm kind of getting lost in my own weeds here, but I, I think you're, you're, <laughs> Go ahead. you're making a lot of really interesting points and prompts for sure. <laughs> you know, I sometimes wonder, I sometimes wonder because I think that we do have crossover wisdom, trans people. And by crossover, I mean applicable useful experiences and knowledge and, 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 and wisdom that, that, that aren't just specific to transness. Um, you know, aligning yourself inside with, you know, more closely with yourself, with, with what the world experiences um, is, is not just particular to us. You know, I sometimes wonder it's if it's better or worse to be a cis person who doesn't feel connected to traditional gender norms 
or be a trans person who just consciously remakes the self to better fit. I've, I've heard this term gender migration to cover movement within a gender so that cisgender isn't just stuck as a monolithic idea and that there can be movement there too, just as a side point. Um, but what the bigger point I found that you were making was about how we're represented, the stories that are reflected back to us are still so sensationalized, are still such a circus in a way, and are still so tragedy-focused, tragedy almost inevitable, I would, I, would, I would call it. And look, there's a lot of tragedy with transness. I'm not, I, I, I believe in being absolutely real. Yeah. There's also a lot of sunshine in being transness, and and I wouldn't mind seeing both represented at times, you know, for instance, and I wouldn't mind stories a little more like my own, you know, I, I ra- rather than rather than having to be over the top, you know, um, transness isn't a spectacle, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and and. When it's not a spectacle for you, but it is for the media, sometimes you can feel misaligned in that way, a kind of cultural dysphoria, you might say. I would say this. We can't trust the wider culture. It's not built for us. It, it doesn't want this, this shift in gender that we are uh, offering the broader world. And um, we have to trust each other as much as possible and the allies that are really, really allies, that's who we have to trust as our culture. Um, and that's one reason I love to come on a podcast, Sarah, is to be included in the discourse that matters so much to my heart, which is our community helping each other. Everyone else does it. We can do it too. Yeah. Um to the to the point that uh we have we have a general wisdom that applies to other people uh like yes. outside of uh, outside of the trans queer community. Um I I had to I had to go find this article because I didn't want to just say stuff uh uh without without like citing the source because it can border on uh being a little bit um fetishistic of of native american cultures but gotcha. uh, uh i do think of like i i often reflect of the fact that on the fact that like in in a number of uh indigenous american cultures there there's the concept of uh, two spirit people and they were generally yes, yes, like re- revered guides. I always, so I'm going to, I'm going to just quote this instead of like putting a foot in my mouth. Um, the two spirit people in pre-contact native America were highly revered and families that included them were considered lucky. Indians believed that a person who was able to see the world through the eyes of both genders at the same time was a gift from the creator Traditionally, two-spirit people held positions within their tribes that earned them great respect, such as medicine men, women, shamans, visionaries, mystics, conjurers, keeper of, keepers of the tribe's oral traditions, conferrors of lucky names for children and adults. Uh, it has been said that Crazy Horse received his name from a winkte, which is uh, one of the names for two-spirit people in a... What, yeah, which tribe did they say it was? I don't want to... Uh, I believe that was Iroquois, but I I can't find it from scanning around. Uh, nurses during war expeditions, cooks, matchmakers, and marriage counselors, jewelry, feather regalia makers, potters, weavers, singers, and artists, in addition to adopting orphaned children and tending to the elderly. Female-bodied two-spirits were hunters, warriors, engaged in what was typically men's work, and by all accounts were always fearless. Um, and that article is Two Spirits, One Heart, Five Genders by 
uh, Dwayne Brayboy, and there, there'll be a link to that in the description. Um, and this is, this is published on, uh, Indian country today. So it's not like, it's, it's not a, like a European perspective of people like fetishizing. This is, this is an internal, uh, chronicle of multiple different indigenous American cultures and, uh, written by a member of that community. And, uh, <clears throat> it is, it is a general history and, uh, recounting of like what happened over the course of, um, European colonization in the Americas. Um, but but that this particular piece has always like, stuck with me because I I've always been somebody who tries to give advice, like try to tries to fix people. And mm-hmm. I I think of like the process of coming out as this like crucible where I broke through this boundary. And I, it, it took years to figure it out for myself. And then it's hard to think of any social moray that is more hard and firm in, in our culture than gender. And so at the point where you break through that, I feel like you have a unique ability to look around you and see how society is constantly inventing false narratives. And, and you have an, a unique perspective and ability to like see those things for what they are and, and give advice. I don't think it's a coincidence that so many different LGBT movements over the years were uh, spearheaded by trans people. I love what you are saying. And yes, to be conscious and aware, uh, because we have to, to be sure, of the way that social constructs work within and around us. Hey, that is so applicable beyond gender even. I mean, once you're thinking that way, right, then you're really sorting through your thoughts and testing them against the heart and spirit and your beliefs and what you know to be true and those kind of things. You can re you can reassess what you've been given by a toxic culture. Um, I would say this. I would say I've heard this term queer advantage, and I love it. And the idea here is that everyone's in transition trans mm. people just trans people just know it <laughs> <laughs> and and having to struggle so hard just to be who we really are inside makes a kind of advantage because so often challenges turn into these blessings because we work so extra hard on it when you work that hard to become who you really are you get really good at it you do yeah and and that's something that we have to offer is realness selfhood authenticity i mean there are so many things that we have to offer i would say that Many, most trans people are neurodivergent mm-hmm. and are special. I'm sorry, I just have to say it. We are creative. We are healers. We are artists. We have visions. We're lovers and warriors. We're kings and queens and everything in between. And often many, many of, of that list and one person, I mean... To be neurodivergent in the way that trans people are is to think outside the box, is to come up with creative solutions, is to create uh, alternative ways of processing and relating and loving sometimes. Um, To be neurodivergent in the way that I often see with trans people is to find possibilities where you thought there were none. Mm -hmm. And I do think we have a lot to offer. And 
I believe in helping each other, yes. And I also believe in helping whoever comes our way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you, you brought this up several times um, about PTSD among, among trans people. And I wanted to ask you, how uh, is is there is there any any way that that, that this is unique? Uh, <clears throat> what am I asking? How does it? How does like PTSD manifest? How 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 do you see it generally? Just like I was saying with dysphoria, and I guess I should say too. If we're talking about trauma and PTSD, I want to give our listeners just a heads up. Um, I I try to be as yes as careful as I can be with my language and and everything else, but you know just know we're wandering into these waters a little bit here. <clears throat> um, most of most of the trans people that I see, most of the trans people that I meet. Most of the trans people I know have trauma of some kind. And I would actually suggest this. Um, if you told somebody, hey, I'm going to put you in a body that's not yours from the time. And I know this is problematic to say it this way. I'm just saying. Yeah. Some equivalent that equivalent that the that the mainstream might understand. If you woke up and had to be in a body that was different than you felt on the inside, and let's say you had to go through that for a decade or two, and everyone around you tried to fool you and tell you that you were the clothes you were wearing, and you woke up one day and realized it was all a dream, that none of it had been real in a way. Is that trauma of a kind? I, I mean, maybe. So, and you know, may may. I think maybe it, that. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I think it absolutely absolutely is, because that that pretty well describes my experience. And I, it took me a long time to really internalize and and accept it as trauma, but it was like. I, I, we tend to think of trauma as, as a direct active thing as in somebody did something to me or I was involved involved in an event uh, and that caused trauma. But I think it can be just as often passive where you were in a situation that wasn't necessarily actively or obviously any particular way, but it still took a toll. If I had to tell you as somebody who specializes in trauma as well as trans, because I was just telling a colleague, how can you not do both if you do one, <laughs> honestly? But uh, I'm sorry, my humor is a little dark. No, 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 no. You're, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's just sad that that's true. So sadly true. Um, if I had to tell you what's worse, direct trauma, in other words, traumatic events or indirect trauma, the chronic underlying daily trauma of existing in, a, in such a toxic environment that trauma is possible, I would say, honestly, the more pernicious version, if they're, they're, they're both, they're both insidious things don't get me wrong of course i guess what i'm saying is maybe not the more pernicious but the one we underestimate is the indirect trauma by far you know as bad as bad as as traumatic events can be and they can be we don't get validated sometimes well we often don't get validated about that right but mm -hmm. once we do 
or if we do, hopefully we do, then we often don't get validated in the same way for all the indirect trauma that surrounded that and that made that possible and that and the fallout from that especially which is we as a cluster called PTSD and as i was saying about dysphoria it just changes forms and when and when it comes to us it plays with our dysphoria it plays with dysmorphia it plays with our bodies and eating disorders it plays with our sex it plays with our worldviews it plays with how we are able to love and i just want to add this on the subject of challenges becoming benefits when you have trauma and often it will be almost unavoidably necessary to process it during transition often um, if it hasn't been worked on before but when you have trauma, it's a challenge. It's a set of challenges, big challenges. But along that journey, there is a place where the flowers I started with in this podcast do start to show themselves from all that darkness. And when you're able to gather your first bouquet and give it away, you realize, you know, we're survivors in every sense of the word, pretty much all of us. And that is something to be, people. That is something beautiful to be. Absolutely. I, um, it's been a, a weird year for me in that, like, this time last year, I had no idea what I was going to do. I was facing graduation and uh, like a future that, uh, you know, trying to do stuff online and no real plans. And now I'm in a position where I'm actually secure and finding some measure of success with expectation of it continuing. And um, it, it, this has been such a long year for me in good and bad ways that I, the, the, the times before I came out feel like they were centuries ago, but recently some stuff like resurged and I had a, a really bad time as part of the reason why the show went on such a long break is um, I was in a really unhealthy living situation for a solid year before I came out and it, it took me a long time to really finally recognize that that was an unhealthy situation that wasn't my fault. And that the person who was sort of responsible for creating that environment, uh, I, I, I call them my abuser now because even though I still, I still hesitate calling them my abuser because that doesn't feel there's a part of me that like that doesn't feel fair or whatever, but. Okay. But you don't need to hesitate if you don't want to, I'll tell you. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that like, I'm never going to talk to them again. And it, it it's, it's part of the process of accepting that, what happened to me was traumatic and it was an abusive situation. And it, it part of the reason why it fucked me up recently is that I realized it was only a year ago that I got out of that situation, a little over a year ago now. And um, I think that's been the most difficult thing for me is really seeing my trauma for what it was and recognizing just how much it affected me from for uh, at every conceivable level to the point where I'm still recovering and I probably will be for a long long time um and I I I think from all the trans people that I've talked to it is painfully common 
to be to, to, to have experienced these situations, uh, these passive abusive situations. I don't know. Absolutely. Um, and what makes this kind of trauma all the worse is that people don't think it's trauma. And so we don't think it's trauma. You know, the worst part about, well, not the worst again, but an underrated and underestimated part of all these things, PTSD, depression, anxiety, trauma, is the added shame and further depression and guilt and anxiety and uh, other symptoms we feel around feeling that way in the first place. It's I call it secondary depression, secondary anxiety, secondary PTSD. When, when, when we we don't even understand what's going on, so we're not able to fully honor the situation. And in your case, experiencing such cultural, social, contextual trauma like that. Um, it's real. I see it. Many trans people experience it. It, um, it's a kind of violence. It's a kind of spiritual violence. Um, and I can tell you that I treat it, I treat it the same as any other kind of trauma and that's what works. Yeah. You know, and that tells you everything about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so before we end the podcast, I want to try to <laughs> steer steer it towards a, a a lighter end end point. I um But Sarah, but Sarah, one second. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Are you feeling okay? I am <laughs> I always like I always like to do a check-in. <laughs> oh no, I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling great. Wonderful. Um, thank you for asking. I really appreciate it. Um Okay. I uh I want to ask you for my listeners um, if if they're in this position, if they're feeling uh, like they m- might be undergoing or victims of this trauma, or they're asking <clears throat> themselves, uh, they might be, are the, am I trans? Um, what what do you recommend that they do? First of all, I would go online and find a good trans community and I would observe. I would search all the questions you have in the little search bar and watch all the threads come up and read through those and see if it, any of it resonates. That's one of the first things that I do because you can do that anonymously. Um, One of the next things you want to do, if you have access to other queer people, or, yeah, I mean, then you want to find your community. That's why you go online, because community can be accessed there. But nothing beats the humanity of the in-person connection. I mean, they're both wonderful, both kinds. But so that's what I would suggest. And if you can find a a trans-informed therapist, do. But I do understand how difficult that can be in certain areas um, and and given how insurance works and and all of Mm. those things. So... um, Many of us do online therapy at this point, so you don't even have to be in the same place, um, um, for instance. Um, So I would say community, online or in-person, and I would say find a trans-informed therapist that you can talk to. And if you can't find any, I'm on Instagram at transtherapistrose, and I can try my best to direct you somewhere if you if you need. Well, you kind of did my job for me in terms of asking where people can find you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to add at the end that uh, I think we're both on the same page in saying that yes, it it is often very difficult and uh, crushing at times, uh, especially early on but it's it's very worth it 
and it's often very beautiful. I could not say it better. I will only add that I have a pen on my purse and it says trans is beautiful. And I tell you, I have come to truly believe that. And I know deep in my heart that if you follow this path, you will too. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree. Well, Rose, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. Sarah, it's been such an honor to talk to you. I consider you a friend from here on out. Oh, thank you. The Trans-Christening Podcast is hosted by Lunar Light Studios. If you would like to support us in creating independent media and hosting all sorts of interesting podcasts from a wide variety of creators, you can go to patreon.com slash lunarlighthq, get access to dark podcasts that only patrons get, and lots of outtakes and bits from various podcasts on the network. And uh, it's just generally, it's good to support independent creators. Cover art is by Dear Witch. Intro and outro music is by Zoestra. If you have questions, thoughts, comments, etc., you can send an email to me at transquestioningpodcast at gmail.com or send an anonymous message at curiouscat.me slash transquestioning. Lunar Light Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay. Mm-hmm.